right. So I am going to do this, I think, uh, pretty much the way that I did the uh, episode I did about the uh, J.D. Vance article, which is to say I'm going to monologue a bit talking about the arguments I make in the article and um, and also, um, you know, and also some of the stuff that, you know, that I just couldn't include since, you know, it didn't fit. Uh, and then I will take any questions if anybody has any calls, although I am going to try pretty hard to keep it down to about half an hour or so today, just because they're, um, you know, just cause it's kind of a busy day. Uh, but in any case, uh, I do want to talk about, uh, this article that I just wrote for the daily beast and about the kind of the larger issue inspired the article. So, the context here is this uh, disgusting hate crime that just happened in Buffalo, New York. Uh, so, um, you know, for I seriously doubt that anybody doesn't already know what I'm talking about. But uh, Peyton uh, Gendron uh, is the alleged shooter and, you know, whatever. For the article, they have to say alleged, but, you know, I think he was actually live streaming it for a minute uh, before Twitch uh, cut off the live stream. So there's, you know... Uh, in non-legal context, you know, where we don't have to worry about the presumption of innocence. Uh, you know, I, I think we could just say the shooter. Uh, so uh, this this guy, uh, Peyton uh, Gedrin, uh, killed 10 people and injured a few others at a grocery store in Buffalo, New York. Um, and uh, he wrote this long, rambling, bizarre 180-page manifesto I have not read it cover to cover, but I did read quite a bit of it while I was uh, researching the article. Uh, and, uh, and he was very explicit in there about why he, uh, why he killed these people, why he, why he killed anybody, uh, and also why he picked this particular location to do a mass shooting. Uh, he, you know, he said he picked it uh, because it was a zip code with a particularly high proportion of black residents. And I think he even scoped out this particular store to know that there would be a lot of black people at the store. And he wanted to kill them uh, because they were black. And how that relates to his view of the world and his racial theories and all that stuff, we'll get to in a minute. But, you know, just as the baseline, that is the, you know, that is the explicit motive that, you know, that he goes on and on and on and on about at great length in this 180-page manifesto. Uh, so because the ideological dimension of what happened was so clear here, uh, that, that meant that there's a lot of discussion about, you know, the extent to which purveyors of similar ideologies might be responsible for hate crimes like this happening. And then also, you know, closely related what the correct response to it is, right? In other words, you know, what's the best way to stop the spread of this kind of ideology and uh, New York's governor, Kathy Hochul, uh, uh, weighed in on this debate, and you know Hochul's intervention was the was the sort of inspiration for my article, since I was pretty appalled by what she said. I wanted to respond to that, um, and uh, she said in an interview with uh, with CNN that uh, the problem here was hateful uh, ideology. I guess the phrase she used was um, was philosophies full of hate. And uh, theories that could radicalize someone sitting on their couch. Those are both phrases that she used in her comments to CNN. Um, and that, you know, she said these theories and philosophies uh, spread like a virus online. That was her, uh, that was her analogy, um, which I have to say is an analogy I find pretty disturbing on a couple of different levels that we'll certainly get into uh, as, we, as we go on. Uh, but the, you know, the, the important thing is in terms of, you know, in terms of the specifics of this is that, uh, she said this, this is a, uh, so philosophy is filled with hate spreading like a virus. Uh, she said she was quote, calling on the CEOs of all the social media platforms to examine their policies. And she said, this is another quote. She wanted them to, um, you know, make sure that they could, quote, look me in the eye and tell me that everything is being done that they can to make sure that this, that this information is uh, not spread. These theories that result in the radicalization of a young person 
sitting in their house. Okay, a couple of initial uh, points about these these comments. Uh, that, you know, this fairly powerful office holder, you know, it's the governor of one of the, you know, major states, uh, is, um, you know, exercising pressure to try to get social media companies to ramp up censorship online. And so I want to talk about both um, the sort of analysis that she's given of, you know, how it is that racist ideas spread and, you know, what their causality is in, uh, in hate crimes, and also the solution that she's prescribing, which is increased social media censorship. Uh, so as far as the analysis, this is not an uh, analogy that's original to me. It's one that many people have been bringing up. Um, sorry, I just, you know, when I said many people have been, you know, just thinking about, you know, former President Trump, you know, a lot of people are saying, right? But I have seen, I have seen several people um, you know, explore this analogy in one direction or another uh, between hate crimes like this and like the Rwandan genocide in the 90s, which there's a very popular liberal narrative that says that uh, the cause of that genocide was these hateful radio broadcasts uh, that um, uh, that were uh, that were put out uh, that. Um, you know the that encouraged you know Hutu people in uh, in in Rwanda, um, you know which is the uh, the ethnic majority to uh, to murder members of uh, the uh, the Tutsi uh, minority, uh, and and there's this and the way she puts that right that these theories will radicalize people you know who are sitting on the couch, you know makes it sound as if there are people who are like stable, well-adjusted members of society who. Um, who, with these you know philosophies filled with hate, uh, spread like a virus uh, to them uh, through social media, um, that that then takes them from being perfectly safe people to being you know people who will commit hate crimes. Uh, as a point of historical interest, this this description of of the Rwandan genocide is one that people who actually know something more about Rwanda than I do seem to uniformly say is absolute nonsense. It's an urban legend. Uh, that the idea that the civil war in Rwanda just happened because of these radio broadcasts uh, is is crazy, right? That they, um, for many reasons, right? That the idea that people who are living together in peace and intermarried and all that stuff just suddenly one day uh, become, you know, hate-filled purveyors of genocide uh, just because they heard some hateful radio broadcast doesn't make a lot of sense on the face of it. Uh, honestly, it feels a little racist and dehumanizing because, you know, we, what do you think Americans would, do that given the radio broadcast yeah, maybe Kathy Hochul does um, and uh, and also just doesn't make sense on the face of it because they uh, because only like 10 percent of homes at the time the genocide happened even had radio transmitters and um, and the these particular these particular broadcasts didn't even reach most of those people so you know it's probably not true uh, in that particular case and in general uh, this idea that like all you have to do is sort of cut, you know, you have somebody who's, you know, who's at home, you know, like they're, uh, they're, you know, whatever, uh, having a nice night and, you know, playing board games with their family. Uh, and then, uh, and then, you know, they see some hateful stuff on the internet and suddenly they become full of hate seems to be a, a story about cause and effect. That is at the very least pretty simplistic. I think we could say that much. Uh, but, you know, I, I think even putting, you know, even putting that aside and also other issues, which we can talk about in a minute, about, you know, the complexities of trying to figure out causation in the case of mass shootings, um, I think it's important not to undersell just how extreme and disturbing this comment is for the governor of New York. Uh, because this isn't just a call for, like, Mass, you know, when she says this information spreading online, she's not just talking about like, um, you know, Gendron's initial attempt to live stream the shooting, which of course was shut down by Twitch within two minutes of the broadcast starting because obviously they don't allow stuff like that. Uh, she's she's not even just endorsing existing policies like the one that Twitter has, for example, which I quoted in the article, which bans the expression of hate towards quote a person, group, or protected category. Uh, which you know is already starting to raise free speech issues, but at least that's just about the expression of hate. But she's going a lot further than that, right? Because what if that's all she meant? Well, 
all of the platforms already have policies like that. Uh, she's certainly not just talking about policies against incited violence because every single platform already has policies. You know, every single significant platform already has policies against incited violence directly. Uh, and she's not even talking about existing policies like that one I just quoted uh, for Twitter, you know, against uh, expression of hate towards a person, group, or protected categories. Uh, you know, she's going a lot further than that, right? She's, you know, she's talking about theories, and philosophies. Those are the those are the terms she used that are linked to hate, right? So it's not just that you can't express hate, you know, it's that you can't endorse, advocate, or just read other people advocated uh, theories or philosophies uh, that are are deemed to be hate linked. Um, and let's talk about the spreads like a virus analogy, because I think especially in the context of the last couple of years in which public health measures, which I supported, you know, and, and I think it was correct to support uh, to stop the spread of COVID, you know, really did involve some civil liberties trade-offs. Uh, I think that's actually true, you know, like, but that doesn't mean that it's not worth it to stop the spread of a deadly virus. It just, it just means that it's a, it's a serious thing, right? It's not a trivial thing. Um, you know, certainly uh, when you're talking about, you know, firing people for their jobs, I mean, I'm a socialist, you know, I mean, I take that seriously. I, I do generally think people have a right to a job. Um, and, you know, and, and also, you know, when you have, you know, government ordered, you know, uh, you know, government shelter in place orders, um, et cetera, right? I mean, again, all of these things can be, can be justified, right? But they're serious things. And in a context of the last couple of years where, you know, stuff like that uh, is, has been widely understood as necessary, invoking the spreads like a virus uh, metaphor to talk about speech, you know, that, that sets off some alarm bells for me. That, that seems disturbingly authoritarian. Uh, and the more you think about uh, that analogy, the more authoritarian and the more disturbing it seems to me, I've got to say. So... Um, you know, because what we're talking about is ideas spreading, you know, like uh, spreading into people's minds, right? That the ideas in people's heads are, you know, what's being compared to a virus. Uh, that, you know, and, and, you know, your right to, um, to risk infection by any idea, right? Any theory or philosophy, to use Kathy Hochul's words, that you want to be infected by is, I mean, that is like right at the heart of what free speech protections are supposed to be about. And I think that like really considering that analogy gets us to why I think free speech protections are really important for um, both individual freedom, right? I mean, there's nothing much more intimate and private than, you know, what goes on inside your own mind, right? You know, your right to read what you want and, and risk that your mind will be infected with uh, with the ideas that you're reading. And it's also essential, you know, moving into a more specifically socialist case for free speech, it's also essential for um, collective democracy and social change, right? I mean, if you believe that ordinary people are capable of self-government, which is certainly the basis of any kind of idea of democracy, and, um, and in particular, I mean, it's the basis for socialist ideas, the idea that people are capable of, of self-government and that could be extended to the economy, uh, then you have, um, you know, if you believe that, right, you can't also believe that, that ordinary people need to be protected for their own good against being exposed to infection by any ideas outside of some range that benevolent censors have said in advance are okay. And when I say all this, I don't, I don't mean to minimize um, just how bad and ugly and toxic some of the ideas that Kathy Hochul might want to censor are, because they really are, right? And I talk about this in the article. They really are very bad. But I do want to say at the very least, just as the starting point of the argument, you've got to balance whatever good might come about of censoring the really odious ideas. You've got to balance that against the general importance of free speech. Uh, and there is a reason why, and I, I link to the article and all sorts of historical examples going back to Eugene Debs, or I could have talked about the industrial workers of the world at the turn of the you know, 20th century, early 20th century, and the free speech fights, that's what they called them, that would be waged by the Wobblies as they went around to different parts of the country, tried to organize and, you know, and, and sort of 
challenging local sheriffs to try to lock them up and then to like flood the jails, you know, and, and again, they really fought this as a free speech issue. That was the phrase they always used or like uh civil rights movement. I talk about Ida B. Wells and, uh, or I, I link to this anyway in the article, I sort of briefly refer to it. Ida B. Wells and the, the newspaper, like the crusaded civil rights newspaper she worked for, which was called the Memphis free speech. Um, and, you know, talk about the link between, you know, that and the anti-war movement, you know, like with the free speech movement at Berkeley that helped to give birth to uh, the new left. And all of these, you know, the, the larger point I was trying to make is there's a reason why free speech was so highly valued by civil rights campaigners and socialists and anti-war activists and other kinds of important dissidents because they understood that it's absolutely essential as a matter of self-preservation that any movement for social change wants to uh, wants to exist within the broadest possible free speech rules, right? You know, because you don't want to make it easy for unpopular ideas to be shut down. Any kind of movement for social change is, is practically almost by definition not quite, but almost, uh, going to be a movement that, you know, is starts out being of a minority and has to, has to convince a majority, uh, or at least a, a big chunk of the population in order to have any chance whatsoever of success. You know, this is not rocket science. I think this is a pretty clear connection between social change and free speech. And you can say, okay, okay, but, you know, we don't want to censor the good speech. We don't want to censor the good dissident speech. We only want to censor the bad, unpopular ideas. Uh, but all I can say is good luck with that, man. I mean, if Kathy Hochul's plan, right, if what she's urging the social media companies to do, which is to go beyond existing policies on expression of hate or incitement to violence uh, or, you know, plotting, you know, plotting crimes online or, you know, having, you know, or live streaming crimes online, you know, she wants to go beyond all that and go to the, what she calls the idea, the theories and philosophies that she thinks that are linked to hate. You know, if the social media companies actually acceded to this pressure from politicians like Ockel and implemented these policies, look, this, this is not like some committee that represents the interests of the working class that's going to be implementing this stuff, right? This is, uh, these, these are like people who, uh, who work for incredibly profitable corporations that have every vested interest in opposing the agenda of the left, in staying on the right side of the national security state, uh, in, uh, in opposing any calls to redistribute their wealth or unionize their workers. Uh, and so given any sort of gray areas and judgment calls, they're just not going to make the judgment calls you want. Um, and, and realistically, any kind of policies that they wrote uh, would, uh, would have to be, um, you know, like, like just would, right? Uh, talk about, you know, if, if they were going to write some policy against, you know, dangerous extremist ideas being spread online, it wouldn't just be right-wing extremism, right? They would say, you know, I guarantee you 100%, whatever policy it was, would say, you know, dangerous extremist ideas on the left or the right, right? That is, that is just how it would be. Uh, that's what the policy would say. Never mind how the policy would be interpreted by the corporate, for-profit, wealthy people who are ultimately making the final judgment calls on uh, what kind of censorship protocols would be in place. Um, so I realize, of course, that from a certain kind of mainstream liberal or libertarian perspective, um, there's, a, there's an argument you could make, right? Like I, I link in the, in, um, in the article to this classic XKCD webcomic uh, called Free Speech, uh, where in a very preachy annoying way the uh, the webcomic says, uh, oh, if if you're censored online, that's not really a free speech issue because free speech only protects you is only about what the government does, you know, not what uh, not what private companies, uh, you know, not what private companies do, uh, you know, private companies, you know, they can, you know, you know, they can do what they want, right? That's fine. Uh, that has nothing to do with freedom of speech. Um, which, of course, as a socialist, I reject that utterly because the entire basis of socialist politics is the insight that private economic power could be oppressive. You know, it's like it's, oppression is, and unfreedom are not the exclusive preserve of, uh, of uh, you know, of government. 
right? Certainly. Uh, so um, the um, so um, so given that, uh, obviously this ar- this argument doesn't hold any water for me. But let's say you disagree with me about that, right? Let's say you're not a socialist and you do think there's a fundamental difference here. Well, I would still point out like historical examples that have always been treated as big free speech issues, you know, by like even good liberals like the McCarthy era Hollywood blacklist. That was a public private partnership in much the same way. In other words, under government pressure, um, the private companies were using their private economic power to blacklist people for membership in the communist party or being fellow travelers or being unwilling to inform on other people. And look, that wasn't the government doing anything. It was the government nudging private companies to do it. And in very much the same way, Kathy Hochul uh, uh, wants to nudge the social media platforms uh, to, uh, to implement censorship protocols. Um, okay, so you could agree with everything I've said so far, right? You could think that these are all pretty reasonable um, you know, you could think that these were all pretty reasonable concerns to have as far as like sort of general concerns about freedom of speech um, and, you know, specific concerns about the likely bad effects of um, of weakening online free speech protections in response to the, you know, the hate crime of Buffalo. You could agree with all that, but you could still say, yeah, Ben, but I'm, I don't know about this because, um, okay. Sure, fair enough. We don't have very many free speech protections in our society right now as is. You know, we do, after all, live in a late capitalist hellscape where most people work in non-unionized workplaces where the employment is at will. They could absolutely be fired for their opinions. Uh, But, so, you know, maybe it's not great to further weaken what few free speech norms we still have. Um, You know, maybe that will have bad effects. Maybe that will make, so, you know, further social change more difficult, etc., but that's a little theoretical, that's a little speculative, and what we have to weigh that against is um, the good that could come from saving the future victims of hate crimes like what just happened in Buffalo. And dealing with that argument is the last section of the article, and I, I just want to briefly rehearse that argument before I, I start taking calls. Um, so thinking about causality for mass shootings that have some kind of ideological dimension is a little bit tricky in general. And I think that's true whether we're talking about black nationalist mass shootings, of which there have been several in the last several years, or um, like mass shootings like the one in Florida, you know, at the Pulse nightclub, where the guy, you know, as far as I can tell, at least from reading about this, maybe this is wrong. I mean, I know his, you know, uh, parents came from, you know, were, I think came from Afghanistan. I think he's second generation. But, I mean, he himself uh, had never, um, you know, I, I see no reason to think that he'd ever traveled to the Middle East and, like, met anybody from ISIS. You know, he was a security guard in Florida. But uh, it, it sort of suited the particular ideological dimensions of his fantasy life to make a big show of uh, pledging allegiance to ISIS before he shot a bunch of people. Uh, so whether we're talking about that kind of Islamic extremism-inspired lone wolf mass shooting, of which, again, there have been several that you can probably think of, or whether we're talking about the black nationalist version, or whether we're talking about the right-wing version, and we should say, for the sake of fairness, that the right-wing version is the most common by far, right? But whichever we're talking about, uh, it can be a little bit tricky to sort of draw a direct line between the ideological influences on the shooter's view of the world and you know how they justify hating the particular people they hate and their decision to engage in a mass shooting uh, for several reasons, right? One is that it's hard to know right, how disturbed people who, um, you know, who might uh, you know, have this kind of drive to go out in a blaze of glory um, if they didn't have the particular ideological influences, it's hard to know whether um, they would have still had that same drive and would have found expression some other way. I'm just not a subject matter expert, so I can't speak to that, and I'm, so I'm just going to leave that one alone. Let's assume for the sake of argument that they wouldn't. Right? Let's assume for the sake of argument that, they, that without the ideology, you know, they, they wouldn't have done anything like this. 
A second problem is that most people who are unstable enough to consider to actually engage in a mass shooting have pretty incoherent politics, right? They're, they're not, you know, consistent ideological thinkers. They're, they're weird eccentrics. Uh, so take, for example, the uh, New York City subway shooter, alleged New York City subway shooter, uh, who um, has been described in many places as a black nationalist, and in many ways that, that seems accurate. He said numerous black nationalist things. Uh, I think he says somewhere that uh, you know he he like fantasized about if Malcolm X had gone to Cuba and lured guerrilla warfare and come back and you know overthrown white supremacy in the United States, but then he also says like you know in his many videos and weird postings, the New York City subway shooter also like did a lot of like victim blaming about black people who were shot by cops. You know, and saying it was their fault they had it coming. You know that if you play stupid games, you, know, you get a stupid prize. I think was the phrase he used that I quoted the article. So that's pretty incoherent. Which again, I think is not surprising given somebody who's unstable enough to do that. And it based at least on the parts I read of this rambling 180-page manifesto uh, by the alleged Buffalo shooter. Uh, again, if we're going to play that game and call the legend, even though he, you know, I, I don't think there's really any realistic doubt about it. Uh, those of us who aren't on a jury and are just trying to figure out what's true. But uh, in there, he, you know, in one breath, he pledges allegiance to the far right. He actually calls himself a fascist, or I guess technically the phrase he uses is eco-fascist. He says, yes, I'm a white supremacist. He describes himself as an ethno-nationalist, but he also describes himself as a leftist. He, uh, he In fact, the phrase he uses is that uh, his politics these days um, fall into, quote, the mild, the mild, moderate, authoritarian left category, although he would prefer to be called a populist. Uh, and he also says he hates conservatism. Okay, so what the fuck do you make of all of that? I mean, how is it, that, you know, how could you be a mild, moderate leftist and also a self-described ethno-nationalist authoritarian fascist? You can't be. I mean, it's just an, it's just incoherent gibberish. It's a mess. Um, you know, I read Glenn Greenwald's Substack about this. I agree with parts and disagree with other parts. We can get into that if any callers want to bring it up. But I have, um, you know, there's a point, like Greenwald even brought my attention there, and I, I looked it up in the manifesto and found it, uh, where he even says, um, uh, he even approvingly cites an article in the magazine where, you know, my name is on the masthead, Jacobin, uh, although I think the way Greenwald puts it is slightly misleading because he says he heaps praise on this article. Uh, he doesn't really heap praise on it. He, in like one part of one sentence, he like one sentence, he says, I can't say it any better than, and he has a link to it. Uh, that's not exactly heaping praise, whatever, that's a nitpick. But the more important nitpick is that um, I don't think he actually agrees with the conclusion of the article. I think he's just sort of saying, like using the argument for the article to make a... a you know, a point that I don't think the author of that article would agree with, right? So there's this, again, it's 180 pages, it's rambling, it's incoherent, it's all over the place, but there are like two pages of the manifesto that are about every weird Craig's favorite subject, uh, gold, crypto, and fiat currency. And so he cites this anti, uh, anti-crypto article in Jacobin, not because he's, you know, pro-fiat, as the author I'm sure is, but because he's pro-gold. Uh, so at least he has wide-ranging reading. Uh, it's not actually clear that Tucker Carlson is an influence. This is, I think, probably one of the strongest points in the Greenwald argument uh, that, you know, he mentions numerous influences over the course of the manifesto, but he never mentions Tucker Carlson. He never mentions Fox News. Um, but there is certainly at least an aspect of his views, in fact, the most important aspect of his views, the one that drove his shooting, that at at the very least rhymes with or echoes a lot of stuff that Tucker very frequently says. A lot of things, something a lot of right-wingers very frequently say, which is this idea that um, native-born Americans are being replaced by immigrants. Now, um, the uh, the version of it uh, that the uh, that the shooter had is a little bit different from the Tucker Carlson Fox News, um, you know Charlie Kirk kind of version of it, uh, because um, typically you know great replacement uh, cranks and hysterics uh, are 
talking about native-born Americans in general, like people who were born in the United States being replaced by immigrants, whereas uh, the Buffalo shooter has this, like his own kind of more eccentric version of it where he says, look, uh, you know, he says white people shouldn't live in Nigeria and black people shouldn't live in the United States because it's a white country. He has this tortured dodge about why, you know, it's not ultimately the Native Americans country, but don't worry about that. Uh, so he thinks now it's a white country, and so non-white people shouldn't live there, which means that even black people who are born in the United States could still be counted as replacers because they're part of the, you know, they count towards uh, the eventual replacement, which would be, you know, white people no longer being a majority of the American population. Um, so that's his view. Okay, now... Greenwald is very concerned to show that um, Carlson can't be blamed for this and, and that he his version is, is really different from this guy's version or whatever. Uh, you know, I think that's like half right for reasons I've been talking about, but I also think it's sort of half irrelevant because presumably the concern is not just this one shooting, but like future future hate crimes. But to me, I would actually take it the other way around. And this is probably the last point I'll make before I, I take a couple calls and then then wrap up, which I, I do want to do pretty quickly. Um, so I would say, look, uh, the very, even putting aside any sort of messiness about trying to figure out the causality of shootings like that, um, the fact that the kind of hateful, bigoted nonsense that inspired him, right? You know, people say, ooh, they're trying to replace us as the majority. Uh, they're trying to bring in this this, this new group who will replace us. Um, and yes, I do accept the point that, you know, liberals say stupid shit about demographics is destiny. And in some ways, this is just that thought attached to a lot of hysteria and paranoia and, you know, and, and nonsense claims about intentionality. But, um, but, the fact that that basic thought is expressed by somebody like Tucker Carlson, who is like one of the most popular cable news broadcasters in the United States, the fact that it's expressed by numerous like elected Republican officials, um, et cetera, tells me that the idea that you're going to stop the spread of that line of thought with, um, you know, just by... Um, you know, you're going to stop it just purely by, um, you know, with censorship just strikes me as asinine given that reality. Because, come on, let's be real about this. Tucker Carlson is not going to be censored. Right? Josh Howley is not going to be censored. None of those people are going to be censored. Outside of truly extreme circumstances, like the Capitol being stormed by rioters whipped up by the president, which you know got the guy who was just barely president for another couple of weeks kicked off of Twitter. Outside of truly extreme circumstances like that, and unfortunately in the United States of America, mass shooting is not one of those, um, we're just not going to get censorship directed against prominent figures in media and elected office. In fact... In the Hochul interview, with the CNN interview, we were brought up, oh, what about you know these prominent reactionaries in media and politics saying replacement things? Hochul wasn't like, yeah, and I want to quick him off Twitter, because she knows that's not going to fucking happen. She was like, oh, well, you know, we should call them out. It's like, okay, call them out, but you know, we've, we've moved the goalposts a lot, right? Like, you're no longer claiming that censorship can solve this problem, right? Censorship is for the little guys, right? That, what that means is, yeah, sure, some you know, some of the, you know, more uncouth conspiracy cranks and, uh, you know, what I call the article World War II reenactors uh, who, who say a really crude, obvious version of the replacement shit uh, that's like, you know, that has less finesse than a master propagandist like Tucker Carlson would put on it. Uh, those people might get the boot. But Tucker Carlson's again the boot. The numerous other people on Fox who say replacement things aren't getting the boot. You know, Republican politicians who say shit like that aren't getting the boot. None of that's happening, right? So I don't think this would even stop the spread of this idea, but what it would do is it would, um, is, is it would create new weapons to be used to censor the left, which is much less, un unfortunately, much less institutionally powerful than Tucker Carlson or Josh Howley or any of these other ghouls. 
Uh, and so the very, very last, last point before I take questions is just this, right? Given that I don't think censorship is going to get it done, right? I don't think censorship, you know, even if it was worth it, and I, I actually don't even think that because I think that the idea of throwing away free speech protections that are important in themselves and important for the possibility of future social progress would be worth it if it stopped, you know, if it like significantly reduced the number of hate crimes. I think that calculation uh, is a bad calculation. I think that the I think the number of people who could die as a result of you know just the left not having more influence in government uh, it vastly dwarfs the number of people who are going to die in hate crimes. So I think that it's a dubious calculation at best. But I also think the premise is bullshit. I think that it's just not true that you could stop the spread of this kind of line of thought you know from infecting people's minds uh, through censorship. It's just not going to work. I think you need to win politically. I think the left needs to be, I think we need a a renewed and more self-confident left that can win the political war against this bullshit. Because ultimately, why is it that this replacement nonsense is appealing to people? Why is it that that's a narrative that like you, you have an increasing number of people who are willing to buy? Well, ultimately, this is a classic scapegoating technique that right-wingers who are actually political servants of rich people do when they want to pretend to be populists in order to to distract people from the real problem. The whole premise of the replacement bullshit is that the interests of native-born working-class people and working-class people immigrating from poorer countries are counterposed to each other, that, oh, they're the threat to your well-being, rather than the threat to your well-being being the corporate oligarchs who are actually a threat to both your well-being and the well-being of the immigrant part of the working class because they have been spending the last several decades, you know, imposing austerity and fending off any attempts to redistribute their wealth and, you know, smashing labor unions. Um, So ultimately, I don't think this stuff can be defeated by cheering on corporate censorship. I think it can only be defeated by telling a better story that's going to be more compelling and just, again, just the left defeating... Um, the pseudo-populist, right-wing, ghoulish scapegoaters politically. There's just no substitute for, for politics. You, know, you can't censor your way out of this problem. So that's my take. Uh, but with that, I'm going to open up the lines for people to tell me that I'm wrong uh, or to tell me that I'm right or to make tangentially related comments, as the case may be. I see we've got a couple of callers. Uh, going to take the first one, who is Owen. Hey, Ben, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? Doing well. Uh, thank you so much. I'm a longtime fan of yours from first seeing you on uh, This Is Revolution podcast. And my question today is in reference to not specifically the censorship when it comes to the Buffalo shooting, but just censorship in general when it yeah. comes to unionizing. So what I wanted to ask you was, uh, do you believe that the censorship of burgeoning unions and organizers online could be just as severe as the constant shadow banning of sex workers on these same social media platforms. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so yeah. First of all, uh, you know, thank you for for the for the initial comment. Uh, I love this revolution, but uh, but yeah, I, I think uh, I think it could be right. Like, I think this is this is what always gets me about those people who have left or sort of soft left views who. Uh, who are somehow in favor of corporate censorship because it seems like, okay, um, if if you don't think they're coming for you, given that you advocate all sorts of things that are terrible for their profits, like the only way that could make sense to me is if you don't think that they're ever going to, you know, that you're ever going to be a big threat to those profits, right? In other words, if you think that you're always going to be so marginal that you'll never be worth censoring. Uh, and yeah, I think that, I think that right now, um, you know, it's, it's not happening, which is good. Like I, I think, um, I mean, I, in fact, you know, the algorithm has on Twitter can tell that I like, you know, I like tweets about new Starbucks unionizing and stuff. So it feeds them to me all day, every day. But, uh, but yeah, I, I think it actually could, right? Like, uh, you know, if, you know, cause like, Stuff like the Starbucks unionizing or the warehouse in Staten Island is really important and it's really inspiring because, like, symbolically, 
uh, it's significant, right? In other words, like Starbucks is something that's super visible. It's everywhere. There are a million of them. Uh, and so just getting this drum roll of like union votes there is like really good like PR, right, for organized labor. Like it, it, it's, it's great, right? And, uh, and similarly, just because Amazon is such a big, important company and like, and, and it's such a, and just it's the first, right? Having that warehouse be unionized is fantastic. But, you know, the overall numbers are still dismal, right? The overall number of, of people, you know, workers who are in a union in the United States is, is still atrocious by historical and global standards. Um, so, yeah, I think that if it, I think that it's, I could absolutely imagine a scenario where that reversed itself. And, um, you know, if, you know, inshallah, uh, we, uh, we actually did get to the point where there was like 20%, 25%, 30% of workers were in unions, where people were more confident about going on strike, where you had maybe some, you know, some like general strikes, like uh, in the 1930s, there were like a bunch of cities that had citywide general strikes uh, and sit-down strikes. And if things like this were happening and the stuff that was going on in the 30s when these general strikes and sit-down strikes were happening, which was to say there was actually a lot of uh, there's actually a lot of violence, right? Like, you know, because, you know, employers would bring in union busters and, and uh, workers would defend themselves and, and there would be some pretty violent clashes. Uh, and so if that, if we got to the point, you know, if the class struggle heated up to the point where stuff like that was happening again, yeah, absolutely, right? Like if they could like sort of claim, oh, see, look at these union thugs, you know, who are, uh, who who are, you know, encouraging violence, you know, with a wink and a nod or whatever, whatever it is they would say about it. It's like, yeah, absolutely. I could see them like really, really turning hard. I mean, not even shadow banning, you know, but just, just, you know, banning, banning. I, I, I think that's, I think that like in that scenario, I think that would absolutely be a risk. Yeah, I definitely see your point, Ben, um, from all of the sex workers that I personally know who just so happen to be, uh, uh, when I first started looking into any just leftist ideas at all, they would, if you want to see how a leftist or progressive was would in this country in the future, always look to how sex workers were currently treated. And I personally think when it comes to your last comments, when it came to us possibly getting to a point where uh, unions or organizers would get into violent confrontations, I think that may not be as possible as it would have been in the 30s or late 19th century, 19th century because um, I personally believe that the meaning of community in this country has just been eroded through like media distraction. But uh, thank you so much for answering my question today and have a nice rest of your day and thank you so much for joining us and spending your time with us today. <laughs> okay. Thanks a bunch, Owen. All right. Uh, we've got Scott. Hey, Ben. Thanks for taking my call. Yeah, what's up, bud? Well, a lot, but I want to be respectful of your time, so okay. uh, I'm trying to figure out what... Let's, uh, let's, let's pick a highlight or two and talk about this. Yeah. Um, I guess my... I guess a question while I figure out what, sure. what, where to go sure. next. Um, why do you think that there has been so much right-wing violence mm, mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to left-wing violence. Like, I know back in the 60s, the, the Weather Underground was was a big deal, and there there was a lot of uh, violence or violent, violent uh, actions taken by them. Yeah. I know that there are, you know, uh, climate action uh, activists who, who do take more active, illegal acts. Um, but... Do you think that it's due to kind of the like which what each side sees as their adversary that that the left wing is is focused more on on the powerful and how that the right wing is more focused on you know these marginalized communities that that are much easier to attack yeah, I mean, yes, I do think that last thing you said is part of it. I mean, I guess if we're going to be scrupulously fair here, um, you know, I think if we go even further back, uh, you definitely find more, um, 
left-wing violence, right? So like in what I'm thinking about here is like the late 19th, early 20th centuries, um, you, you have quite a few instances of like anarchists mostly who um, doing like doing like bombings and assassinations. Um, that's, that was like, you know, that was certainly, um, you know, that was certainly much more, um, you know, much more common. And then, you know, you could, you know, like um, in Europe, but also also to an extent in America, right? You know, that's the think about you know Haymarket Square and all that stuff, right? So, um, yeah, I, I and you know, and, and then I guess you know, if we want to think, you know, like I mean, this is something that like Vladimir Lenin like wrote like polemics to Downsing, right? I think he has like a uh, an article or pamphlet called "On Individual Terror." where he talks about how this is like a petty bourgeois, you know, distraction that, you know, like under, you know, cause you need like mass movements for social change, uh, not like individuals, you know, sort of try to do these spectacular acts of violence and how the sort of theory behind them that like you could do these spectacular acts of violence and then that would somehow inspire the people to like rise up to support you it never really pans out. Uh, but all of that said, I think you're probably... In fact, I think you're definitely still right that, like, I think that um, that right-wing ideology, you know, like, it's, it's, it is probably, you know, especially if we're talking, and I guess we need to separate out a little bit um, what's sometimes called, like, lone wolf terrorism, which would be, um, you know, like the stuff in Buffalo, or for that matter, like some of these, like, Islamic fundamentalist um mass shootings you know like like the the one at the military base or the one at the pulse nightclub um you know we want to separate out those a little bit from like um from from kind of more organized political violence um you know like if i i I think because i mean if we're talking about more organized political violence then i guess i'm not quite sure how to even measure it because um you know, certainly in the 70s, I mean, you know, the weather underground is the American version, which is actually pretty mild, right? You know, that, uh, like, the weather underground is pretty tame by the sort of international standards of left-wing terrorist groups. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, they didn't overthrow a country. Well, yeah, not only did they not do that, but, like, honestly, in the very early stages of the weather underground, they were they were willing to they were at least contemplating or planning a pretty brutal attack that on like a was they were going to do like a dance to the military base or something. They were going to like kill everybody there. Uh, but, um, uh, but then like they, like a few of them like basically killed themselves accidentally making bobs and it kind of freaked them out and they, and they pulled back and, um, and like after that, like I think all the actual weather bombings that were carried out, like, almost nobody was really killed, right? You know, that there was, like, I think, like, I think the only, like, weather... I think there's, like, some very late-stage thing where, like, I don't know if it was even still the weather underground at that point or some sort of successor splinter organization. Um, Like, I think killed a couple people in a bank robbery or something. But, like, by and large, they were pretty, you know, vegetarian as as terrorist organizations go, right? You know, but, like... If you, but then, like, if you look at at like the Red Brigades in Italy, or like the uh, the Red Army faction and uh, in Japan, groups like that, I mean, like, I think they're like much more like willing to use, you know, like violence. Uh, and then, like, you kind of referred to you're talking about overthrowing governments, and then it's like, okay, then it gets really complicated, right? Because it's like, are we also talking about stuff like the IRA, right? I mean, is that a you know, like, because yeah. Uh, there's certainly like the kind of, uh, you know, 19, like certainly like the 1970s kind of iteration of the IRA, you know, is very influenced by everything that was going on in the seventies, right? That kind of like, you know, idea of like a wave of world revolution, whatever that they kind of situated themselves in. And like, there was a, um, and like, there was also, you know, there's also plenty of socialist influence in the history of Irish Republicanism, which is a good thing, you know, but like, um, but I mean, in many ways, like that's part of the left, right? And they, and they they certainly killed plenty of people, you know, over the decades, the troubles, you know, seventies and eighties, and going into the nineties, um, and you know, included civilians, and even like, 
and even something like you know the ANC in uh, in South Africa, right? I mean, that's like a justified liberation struggle if anything ever could be. But also the armed wing of the AMC, the, I, I forget the the phrase, but it's like a it translates to like spear of the nation. Like you know, they they would definitely use tactics like the kinds of bombings and stuff that would be, you know, we would call terrorism in other contexts, right? Like so, um, so I don't know, right? Like I think that the I think if you're talking about more organized violence and like also you're talking about a global scale, um. I still think the right wing, like, is going to have a lot more bodies, <laughs> you know, racked up just because, like, uh, if nothing else, so much, like, even non-state, like, paramilitary right wing violence is like aided and abetted by powerful actors, and they're just more likely to be more effective and lethal. Uh, but yeah, I mean, certainly if you're talking about like lone wolf violence in the contemporary United States, I do think that's much more often right wing than left wing. Um, and it, I mean, it's a little bit messy because I, I kind of mentioned earlier in the monologue the um, like some of the mass shootings the last several years that have been carried out by black nationalists and is black nationalism left wing or right wing? That gets messy, right? You know, like like yeah, how you want... yeah. That's that's what spurred the question was was you talking about how how the Buffalo shooter had some left wing views while being inconsistent with with all the white nationalist stuff. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, I, right. No, exactly. So it's like, um, and I think that like, you know, there's certainly versions of black nationalism that, you know, have more of a like socialist kind of flavor to them. Although there's a lot of black nationalism that's like, you know, like we're, we sort of instinctively classified as left wing because it's a movement of oppressed people, but like also, you know, also a lot of that stuff is like pretty right wing when you start to dig into it, you know? So, uh, uh, very socially conservative, very pro-capitalist, you know, et cetera. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I mean, I, I do think at least that the best kinds of left-wing ideology uh, aren't very prone to these kinds of acts of violence because they're about social solidarity and, you know, sort of mass power of working people. But, you know, I, I don't know if that's stacking the deck to say that that's, you know, like, you know, I don't know if we're comparing like to like, if we're comparing that to like all of the right wing. Um but I don't know. I mean, I guess, I guess probably, I think probably your initial explanation is as good as anything, right? That it's like, um, that to the extent that you're told that your enemies are enemies with lots of it, like, are like systems and institutions, you're less likely to think that you're, you're going to be able to make a meaningful contribution to combating that by just like going out and finding some people to shoot. So I mean I I think that's I think that's like somewhat plausible, but like also I mean it's fucking it's tricky because like there is you know there is that guy who um uh like in what was it like 2017 or 2018 maybe uh who shot up the uh congr- who like shot all those congressmen while they're playing baseball, right and was was supposedly a Bernie Sanders supporter. Yeah, yeah, that. he was ba- like. So I actually read a little bit about this guy, and I think that, like, he was... I mean, he was a Bernie supporter, apparently, but he was, uh, you know... You know, he wasn't, like, a Jacobin Magazine reader kind of Bernie supporter, right? You know, he was, like, a... He was, like, a... He was the... Let's put it this way. He was the kind of Bernie supporter who, during 2016, he had a Bernie sticker on his car, but he didn't take off his old Obama sticker. You know, he was, like, in that lane. Interesting. Like, uh, like he was apparently a big Rachel Maddow fan, and he was like very like worked up about Russia Gate and stuff like that. But he also had some like Bernieish economic views. So I don't know, you know, it's like and whatever. That's like a that's not an uncommon kind of person, right? Because like lots of people are confused ideologically. So you know, you get like lots of people are sort of stuck at some weird transitional phase, and like they're you know whatever, you know, it happens. But. Um, but yeah, right. So, but there is that guy who had some pretty left-wing economic views, but still thought that he was somehow helping something by opening fire on on members of Congress, which you know doesn't make a lot of sense. Because like, um, one thing that you know, I mean, in fact, actually, I think what happened is honestly kind of the best case scenario, which is that like, 
it's something that people will maybe vaguely remember happened and bring up as a, well, what about this time, right? You know, like, because uh, you could easily imagine under other circumstances that being a disaster for the left that that happened. Uh, but, like, it, it's certainly hard to imagine a scenario where people would see, like, a bunch of congressmen being shot, you know, by, by some crank and uh, think, oh, I'm going to look into the crank's views. He's probably right. Right? You know, it's like that's that's not going to happen, right? Like, a, it's... Yeah. At best, nothing is going to happen, and at worst, the opposite is going to happen. So it doesn't make a lot there's of sense. Pl- there's nobody planning a mass shooting looking for a reason. You know? Well, this is the thing. I mean, I think oftentimes. Well, I mean, I think oftentimes they are looking for a reason, but I think that you know, I mean, just not to be too simplistic about it, I think that the kind of people who do mass shootings, um, it's not well thought out. Let's put it that way. Right. You know, I mean, it's 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 like this is something that people. Like, I don't know. I think there's, I think there's like a psychological dimension of why people do this that I don't completely understand. But like, is like, um, I think, I think the idea that like everybody will know what they did is some kind of big part of it, right? You know that like, um, but I, I don't, you know. But again, people, it's like it's not, it's not that surprising to me that like the Buffalo shooter described his political ideology in these weird and coherent ways or that like the, um, you know, the, the New York's, you know, subway shooter was like kind of like a black nationalist who sort of hated black people. You know, it's like, uh, cause like, I don't, you know, this is not, you know, this is not an act of like a balanced, thoughtful person, right? Like this is the, this is the act of somebody who's like really angry and unstable and they're looking at something to, to do with it. Right. And like maybe they, and maybe that just, and maybe that's also part of why it tends to be more right wingers, you know, uh, at least for the, for like the mass shooting kind of political violence that it's like, it's just something that like, you know, like there's, there's just more, um, you know, I mean, it's not like leftists aren't angry or shouldn't be angry, right? But it's like there's, there's maybe there's like a little bit more raw rage if you have this like kind of, you know, view of the world where, you know, um, it's like you have these whole categories of ordinary people who are the problem. Like, you know, whether it's like black people for the Buffalo shooter or whether it's like, um, it's like women for, what was his name, Elliot Rogers, the incel shooter. You know, it's like um, maybe that just like maybe just going around, maybe just going around every day thinking that like there's some big category of ordinary people who are like really menacing to your interests and like really horrible. Like maybe that's just like something that, you know, lends itself a little bit more to doing this stuff. That, that, that's what I meant by uh, they're not looking for a reason. They already have their reason. Right, right. Yeah, they're maybe looking for a justification. Yeah. Um, if you have another minute, I, sure. I couldn't figure out a question, but I just wanted to bring up something about the dangers of censorship. Yeah. Um, Reddit uh, recently implemented a change to their blocking system. I don't know if you're familiar with it. I'm not, no. Um, so basically what they did was they allowed users to block another user. That's that's happened, you know, before. The change they made was that... Um, once you blocked someone, they would no longer, you wouldn't see their posts and they wouldn't see your posts. Okay. Yep. So, so what the, this person did an experiment where they, you know, they came out with, with a bunch of stop to steal. Basically they copied and pasted, um, you know, posts that other people had made, but there were, there were very radicalized, very, you know, um, I'm just going to say crazy. Sure. Um, kind of posts. And what they did was they put these posts up and then, you know, they get a couple hundred upvotes, a couple hundred downvotes. But anytime somebody would make a comment and stand up to them, tell them to fuck off, whatever, yeah. um, they, w- they would block that person. And then they would go again, do another round. And they'd get, you know, a couple hundred more upvotes and get more people uh, so, you know, and so it just exponentially came up to where the, to the point where he was getting, he was blocking out the people who were, um, who were potentially going to, uh, stand up to, or to, or to try to, um, disagree 
on things. Uh. And so he ended up getting much more promoted because he was figuring out how to target his audience. And it was, you know, it was stopping people from being aware even that these, these sorts of things were, were um, happening. So leaving it to these, to the social media companies to figure out ways to protect people, quote unquote, yeah. is, is a dangerous, dangerous yeah well i'm certainly with you on that um all right i i probably should actually cut off uh there for today but uh thank you so much for the call that was really good uh i'm uh, also taking your capital class and really enjoying it (laughs) okay well thank you so much for that scott uh that actually reminds me i have to email people about changing the time slot for this weekend uh but yeah uh but yeah, I, I I really appreciate that. I've been enjoying teaching that. As it has been a blast to you know kind of have those class discussions. Um, I think I've learned a lot from it every week. But anyway, all right, I'm going to cut it off there. Uh, thank you so much. Left is better.